And so Jesus didn't want anyone to have some kind of wrong idea here. He's saying it's going to be hard. But guess what? There's a, a way that we can know God that you can only experience by suffering. There is a way to know God in the closeness and in, in the, the love of God in a way that is only seen through difficulty. And he said, if that's how we get it, he says, then, then that's what I want. If the only way to get there is by suffering and brokenness and heartache, he says, then, then that's what I want to experience. I do not want a life that, that is so easy and so cush that, that I don't experience that kind of relationship with God. He says, bring on the beatings if that's what it takes to know Jesus Christ. Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. Corinthians chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 6, it says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sake, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. It was C.S. Lewis who said, In God you come against something which in every respect is immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Tonight we're going to be talking about the issue of pride. And last week we covered verses 1 through 5, looking at the calling uh, that God had placed on the Apostle Paul and Paulos. And he says, if you're going to look at us, if you're going to put us under scrutiny, put us under the microscope, what you're going to find, hopefully, in a servant of the Lord is not only a servant, but a steward. And those two are coinciding uh, things, where a servant is someone who's a slave. We looked at some of that the more in depth as to what that meant. But also a steward, someone who is in charge of everything, but does not own anything. And so you're to take care of it as though... Um, the master is coming for it at some point. You know, like you've, um, like you're babysitting and the parents are coming home, right? That's kind of a big deal. You should probably take care of their kids. Um, so that's the idea that he puts there. He says, and what is the requirement of a steward? A requirement is, first of all, faithfulness. Someone who is faithful is dependable and is true. And so we looked at some of those, those aspects as a servant of the Lord or someone who desires to serve God. Those are some things that should be found within us as we desire to walk with God and serve with God. We also talked about the monotony of continuance, um, which has been this whole week is just the monotony of continuance. Wednesday comes, Sunday comes, we get up, we go to work. And that monotony of continuance oftentimes can drive us absolutely crazy. But finding joy and finding the Lord in the everyday, just normal things that we have to do, right? Those of you that have a job, um, lucky to have a job right now, but you're like, I don't necessarily like this job. But it's paying the bills, and so I'm going to work. Those of you that have been working a job for a long time, and you're like, Maybe it's time for a change. I just want to take, I just want to go where the wind takes me or whatever. Maybe you're a free spirit or whatnot. Um, and you're like, I'm just sick of doing the same thing over and over. So much of life is simply that as an adult is doing a lot of the same things over and over and over. But the joy that we find in Jesus is that every day we wake up with new mercies. 
We, we wake up with the same commission in a, in a life that is guaranteed to be exciting as you follow Christ, because you never know what's going to happen with the Lord. So Paul's making the point as you examine his life that you should find these things, and they should also characterize any person who desires to be uh, a servant of the Lord. But remember, we talked about a few weeks ago about one of the reasons that division was taking place in the church. There's a lot of different sects that were breaking up and things that were happening. People were going this way and that way, and there was fighting, and there was divisions. And one of the main reasons that that was happening, and one of the reasons that it's a bad thing that division takes place is because it weakens the witness of the church in a community. And so when there's constant battling and fighting and splits and all of this stuff, it actually weakens the witness of the love of Jesus, right, to a community. Like if we're like, God's love, and he loves you, but I do not love them. I mean, that kind of weakens your ability to stand on anything and say, this is how the church is, the loving, gracious example of Jesus. And so it weakens the witness of the church, but one of the main fuels to division in the Corinthian church was the issue of pride. Pride. And Paul, under the inspiration by the Holy Spirit, knew that if they were going to be an effective church in their city, that things need to be or things needed to be corrected. And their division was often fueled by pride. And they thought, man, this group of people was better than this group of people based upon who baptized them and all these different ridiculous issues. So the Bible has a lot to say about pride, doesn't it? The Bible says in Proverbs 29, 23, a man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. Pride is to exalt yourself and humility is to lower yourself. And the kingdom of God is actually an upside down kingdom, right? Up is down, down is up. When Jesus says that if you want to be great in the kingdom, what must you be? Servant of all. It's an upside down kingdom that greatness is actually servanthood. In our our way of thinking, we start at the bottom and we work our way to the top, right? We're always trying to work our way up in a job or something like that. But according to God's kingdom, serving the bottom is greatness. That's what it is. And the kingdom of God is an upside down one. The the way up is the way down, is to exalt or, or to exalt self, is to lower self. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before the fall or destruction. And a haughty spirit, or another word for pride, a prideful spirit before a fall. When we exalt ourselves, the idea is that we place ourselves right on the edge, is what he's saying. That pride actually comes, it, it places us upon the edge of falling. We took a group of high schoolers to Horseshoe Bend. Anyone ever been to Horseshoe Bend? It's beautiful from a very far distance. It's this beautiful place in Arizona along the Colorado River, and it's literally just a straight drop to the bottom. Sarah was there. Stephen was there. I stood 100 yards back from the edge because just the thought, thought of being close, it actually gives, right now I'm actually having anxiety just thinking about how high it was. And everyone's like, well, you got to look down at least once. Like, you came all this way, you got to do it. So I'm like, <laughs> I think I laid on my belly and looked over and was like, ah, cute, cool, I'm out. Like, we're good. <laughs> but there's always those people, aren't there? Aren't there? Who need the shot. And they're like, on the very edge. And who insist upon being on the edge. And they're like, 
Yeah! You could do that from a safe distance, people. There's no ropes, okay? So one group went to like some pink sand dune place to go slide down sand dunes, and I was like, that sounds fun. But I got to go to the death trap of teenagers where they're all trying to take photos, and they're like, look at me, I'm going to do a handstand on the edge. And you're like, I think I vomited. I vomited. I was so... But there's always those people. While we were there, no joke, I had kids jumping from rock to rock on the edge. And I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. Get back. Like, I just, I, I hated it. I hated the whole day. I couldn't wait till we got home. It's an awful, awful idea. And I don't know why we would ever do it again. But anyway, a lot of great pictures. While we were there, someone was actually doing a handstand on the edge, by the edge. And I thought to myself... You are the biggest moron that has ever existed upon this planet. Because no, there's no, you make one mistake. One little gust of wind comes. Someone just kind of doesn't pick their feet up quite enough. And you are falling to your death. Right? Like, I'm not, this is like a serious thing. And people are like, oh, nonchalant. Listen, that's how pride is. We take it so nonchalant, like, oh, no big deal. Just do handstands right by the edge. This is what Proverbs is saying. Pride goes or places itself on the edge, and all it takes is one little misstep, one little push, and there's a big fall. That is the idea behind it. And the Bible talks very heavily upon the seriousness of pride. James chapter 4, verse 6, it says, but he gives more grace. I love how it starts with that. But he gives more grace. It, it talks about the heart of God, that he desires to pour out grace upon our life. And then he goes on to say, therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It says, God desires to pour out grace, but what will actually repel God is pride. What pushes him away is a prideful spirit. Someone said this, pride is a devastating sin and is complex. Most sins turn us away from God, but pride directly attacks God. It lifts us above and against God, seeking to dethrone him by enthroning ourselves. Pride's a serious thing. It's even one of the things that God hates. It's like when God lists the things that he hates, pride is at the top of the list. There's like seven. Someone's like, there's six things that God hates. Actually, there's seven. Number one, pride. God hates it. Why does God hate it so much? Because it's so destructive. Pride, at a lot of the root of most sins, a lot of sins, is found pride. It's where it begins. Matthew 23 says this, But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Listen to this part. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. It's actually a promise of God because pride is so destructive and so harmful to us that God promises that he will rid it from our life. He says, if you're puffed up and you exalt yourself, he says, I guarantee you, I promise you that I will humble you. I will. That's in red. It's in the red. Jesus said it. God. Like, you want to puff yourself up? I love you so much, I'm going to pop your balloon. That's right. I will humble you. It's a promise from God. It's so destructive that he promises to work it out 
of my life and your life. What is pride then? Okay. So we're, we're all, this is like a big deal and we need to be aware of where pride's coming from. You're like, am I prideful right now? Is it behind me? Where is it? Is it in my, where do I find it and how do I remove it? What is pride? Before we go on to look at the effect of pride in the lives of the church, we need to make sure that we have a good understanding of what pride is. What does pride look like? Are there any examples of it in scripture? Well, pride is often used in a positive way, right? To have school pride. Um, to have school pride. That was the only one I could think of. But when, when um, you get a sense of pride when you accomplish something. Have you ever set out to accomplish something and you did it and you're like, yeah, my chest just went out a little bit more. That's right. I did it. I finished it. I completed it. I built that 4,000 piece Lego set that I set out to do during COVID and I did it or whatever. I don't know. But you say college, like you set out to graduate college and you did it and you have your degree and you're like, yes, I have this sense of accomplishment and pride. Listen, God is not condemning you feeling good about accomplishing something. You know, you finished that Pinterest project that you were after and you're like, amazing. I came out exactly like I thought it would. Right, fellas? Um, you know, just that's the way I thought it was going to be. There's nothing wrong, and God is not condemning us for having a sense of, of pride when we accomplish something. That is not what's being said here. He's not condemning that. Or when you get that from, from a family member who's accomplished something uh, or, or done something great, and you're like, yeah, that, that, that pumps me up. Go, go Newman clan or whatever. Like my son this year, my nine-year-old son was playing soccer, and for the first year ever, and they put him at goalie. So I immediately am just anxiety-ridden watching my son go through the pressure of not having any defense and just getting shot on for like 45 minutes. And you're just like sitting there like, mm. yeah, that's my son. Dude, shut out. He only got scored on twice this year. And I was like, that's my boy. That's my boy. First year, right? He even had like multiple penalty shots. And he would just take the ball right to the gut, like right in the stomach. And then he would fist pump when he'd block it. He'd go, yeah! And we yeah! He was on the Screaming Unicorns. That was their team name. Super intense. Now, when I'm beaming with pride as I walk out with my I Love Luke shirt and my Luke's dad hat, God's not looking down and be like, I'm going to pop that balloon. You prideful, arrogant <laughs> punk, you know? No, there's nothing, God's not condemning us for being excited for something that someone else accomplishes. So what is the pride that he's talking about? Pride is, again, it's exalting yourself above others. It is also saying, I don't need God. It's also saying, I don't care what God says, I'm going to do it my way and do it the way that I want. It's interesting if you Google search pride, um, what comes up? There's the definition, but there's also all these alternate definitions. And one of the definitions is talking about pride parades. And it's interesting that we call them pride parades because that's exactly what they are. It's exactly what they are. It's pride that refuses to see an individual's need for God and to say, I don't, and it says basically, I don't care what God said, I'm going to do what I want. Did you find that fascinating? So a pride parade is exactly that. It is the refusal to acknowledge God 
and it is the refusal to accept God's ways. In 1 Corinthians, it explains more of this, and Paul's going to tackle some of these things. But the, the Corinthians were exalting themselves above, above others. Chapter 3, verse 4, he says, For when one says, I am of Paul, and the other, uh, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? He, he brings them back to this point where he says, you see what's happening here. You're dividing and you're exalting yourself above someone else. You think you're better than someone else, based upon who discipled you or whatever you know, is happening there. He says, are you not carnal? Do you remember the story of King Nebuchadnezzar? At one point, he was warned about his pride. And he forgot. And he looked out over his kingdom, and he says, look at what I have made. And God touched his mind and took away his, like his, I don't know how you would say that. Ben Corson would probably know what it is, the cognitive, cognitive dissonance or whatever. He took away that part of his brain, and the guy became like a wild beast. He became like an animal. And he walked amongst his gardens on all four legs, like a beast, for years. Until he came to, God touched his mind again, and he says, there is no one but God. It was pride. It was, it was to say that I don't need God. Look what I have made, and look what I have created. It's, it's basically what we find in, um, oh, what's the word? We talked about it a few weeks ago. It's human, it's, uh, secular humanism. That's the word. Secular humanism is the pushing away of God, saying we don't need God, we are self-made. We are our own God, right? It's what our culture believes. It's what our culture stands upon. So we have the story of Nebuchadnezzar it's saying that he doesn't want anything to do with God. But do you remember when Saul, King Saul, he was going into battle and he was waiting for Samuel to come and make sacrifice before they went into battle. And Saul got impatient. Saul jumped in. He made sacrifice. He did something that only the priest is supposed to do. He jumped into a spot that he didn't belong because he says, I don't care what God says. We need to get this done. And when Samuel shows up, he smells the barbecue. He sees what's going on. And he goes, Saul, what are you doing? What are you misstepped. You, you, you went around God's will. You did what you wanted to do, Right? It's also pride. And that guy's whole life is characterized by pride. But when you look at the church in Corinth, what was the effect of pride upon them? What were some of the effects? Look what it says in, the, um, in those verses. Verse 6. Apollos, for your sake, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against another. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did not indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you have received it? Some of the issues that came from pride is, number one, they have a low view of Scripture. Number two, it says there that they were puffed up, or they have a puffed up view of themselves. And the third one is that they had a distorted view of Christianity. So the first one, they have a low view of scripture. When he says that you would not, uh, in that you, what does it say? That you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written. Speaking of scripture. Speaking of what God has said. What had happened is their opinion had become more important than what scripture had said. Like we know what the Bible says about that, but actually we think that, huh, that's pride. Is to put yourself above what God says is is pretty prideful, right? We talked about it last week when someone says, you know, don't judge me. You know, um, it's Matthew chapter 7 where, where we talked about like, hey man, don't judge me. Judge not lest you be judged. 
Do you know what that verse is actually saying? That when someone knows God's word and knows that it says or forbids an action or someone is misbehaving and they're saying, hey, don't judge me, that when someone comes to you and says, hey, what you're doing is wrong, that's not judgment. Judgment is when they say, hey, the Bible says this, but hey, that's okay. What they've done is put themselves over God and made themselves judge. That's judgment. That's judgment. When someone caringly, lovingly comes and tells you, hey, you kind of are like messing up and, and, you know, that's not right. And you're automatically defensive and you're like, I don't know about you, but I know this verse in the Bible that trumps all other Bible verses that says you cannot judge me. Right? Everyone knows that, that verse. Even non-Christians know that verse. Like Jesus said, do not judge. But you know he also said to judge? Is this the great, like, this is the contradiction we've all been, no. Those statements are true in light of the context that they exist in. And so we need to understand that pride is something that blinds us. It blinds us to what's really going on in our heart. And this is something that the the church was experiencing. They sought their opinion over or held it more highly than God's word. And so they had a low view of scripture. And an evidence of this is the fact that they had problems in just about every relationship in the church. Marriages had problems. Interpersonal relationships had problems. Romantic relationships had problems. Families had problems. And the community had problems. It's all because they were prideful. They'd exalted their opinion over the word of God. And the Jewish leaders did this as well, but a little different. You hear of them always coming to Jesus, saying to Jesus, you broke the Sabbath day. You, you violated the Sabbath. You can't heal a man on the Sabbath. That was a tradition that they had put around the Sabbath. There's this thing called the Mishnah. It was basically a fence around a fence. I'm going to try and slow down a second because I'm talking really fast. Decaf did not work. Okay, so there's the law of God, which is a fence, right? It's a good fence. Like, if I had another cup, I'd put the cup on top. And that is the, the Mishnah, right? There's this Mishnah around it. So, like, in order to keep the law of God, we put this other 365 ridiculous thousands of laws around it so that you can actually keep the law. What had happened is that the law of God had actually been replaced by the Mishnah, where they held the traditions of men and the opinion of men higher than the actual keeping of God's law. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus says, you have disregarded the commandment of God to keep the traditions of men. And the same thing was happening in the church of Corinth. Their pride had exalted their own opinion, and therefore they had a low view of what Scripture said. You know what's great about the Bible? Is that I don't have to care about what your opinion is. Can we all get an amen? amen. You know, it's, isn't that great? When someone's like, well, my opinion is like, hey, I don't care. Because <laughs> it says this You're not the authority on the subject God is the authority on the subject And I wouldn't say that That's obviously, obviously rude um, But I say it in my head And that's super prideful So um, that kind of shows you where I'm at um, But yeah, it's like People always say, well my opinion I feel It doesn't matter It doesn't matter I feel like I, I'm I'm, uh, I'm um, I feel like I'm allowed to or given a pass on this because of my childhood. You know how many biblical characters had messed up childhoods? 
All of them. Really jacked up. I mean, Moses was thrown in a basket. <laughs> like, found in a river. You know, it's like, he could have been like, oh, my family's so jacked up, and I have all these excuses as to why. And he's like, no, I'm just going to do what God says. It doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter how I feel. And, and what's happening is we become victims to what we grew up in, and so we le- use that as a past to live how we want. Instead of saying, like, God, you're the authority, and my past has been paid for. I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm a new person. You give me newness of life, an abundant life. Therefore, I'm going to do what you say. We use all these different ways to kind of excuse our own pride in ridiculous behavior. And I'm just going to say mine because I'm super good at it, super good at it. Um, The Bible is designed even to change us. Do you know that? The Bible is given to us in order to change us, to make us different. If you remember the story in Revelation 10, it's kind of a weird story. John's there, he's having this vision, an angel comes, hands him a scroll, and he says, take the scroll, and you would think, what's next? What are they going to do? Read the scroll, right? Like we kind of like the next thing, take the scroll. And what does he say? Eat the scroll. And you're like, no, oh, that's maybe a weird translation. No, he says, take the scroll and eat the scroll. And so he does. He eats a book. And as he eats this book, he describes it as it was sweet as honey on his lips, in his mouth. But as it goes into his stomach, it becomes bitter. The word of God is meant to change us, cause us to move. And so when you read scripture and you come across something that you don't like and it kind of makes you itch and kind of like get uncomfortable, the Bible is doing exactly what it was set out to do. Because God loves you He's not going to let you stay the same. There is a sanctification process that we are going through, and God is drawing us out and causing us to change. The word of God is meant to affect us and to change us, and when we read it, we're confronted with our error and presented with a choice to obey or to not. Think about it. There is not a culture in the world that the Bible is not counterculture to. That if you went anywhere in the world and you're like, okay, I'm going to read the Bible and do what it says, you will look and stifling different than that culture that you're in. It calls us to change and have a high view. Of, and to have a high view of scripture is to allow scripture to change you. To allow God's word to change you. The second thing is they were puffy people. <laughs> um, sorry. I just think of Wally when they're on those carts and they're puffy. They're all puffy people. Anywho. Um, verse 6. B, it says that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. They were puffed up. They were inflated or full of hot air. They were thinking they were better than other people. Look at verse 18. Now some are puffed up as though they're not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly. Look what it says later on in the verse, in verse 19. Um, who are puffed up, but the power. Whoa. That's weird. Who are, wait, let me read that whole thing because that's a weird thing to just read. But I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up but the power. There we go. That makes more sense. When you're just like, you who are puffed up but the power. Um, that's weird. Okay. Right on. should really study. They are inflated, full of hot air. Okay. Why is it wrong to be puffed up or prideful? Number one, It violates the very nature of Jesus. Jesus always was lowering himself. If you look at the the book of John, turn with me to John chapter 1. 
We studied this book 14 years ago. John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he beheld his glory, and the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. What is John saying? That Jesus made everything. That he existed, exists, and will forever to exist. He is eternal God. That everything that is made, everything that is made, Jesus made it. If it's not made, Jesus didn't make it. If it doesn't exist, then he didn't make it exist. If it exists, Jesus made it. Now what happened? Jesus lowered himself and became flesh. It violates the very nature of God to be puffed up with pride. Jesus made everything. He made himself of no reputation at one point. John 13, at the Last Supper, when Jesus is there with his disciples and they're having an argument over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, right? They're not like, you're the greatest, Joel. And they're like, no, you are, Kevin, or whatever, Kyle. And um, they're not like saying, like, you're actually like thinking about it, you're probably the best. Because of like, you know, your manliness or just your leadership skills. I think you're going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Um, you're probably the best fisherman, so that would make the best. That's not what they're saying. They're like, I'm going to be the greatest, and here's why. Point A, here's the PDF that I printed out for all of you to see why I'm the best. And then Kevin joins in and is like, actually, you're kind of a jacked up guy. And so they're all having this discussion. At, you get 13 people in a room, or 12 people in 13? 13 people in a room? They're not all going to have the same discussion. These guys are all having the same discussion. Like, who's going to be the greatest? And this is when Jesus girds himself with a towel and begins to wash the disciples' feet. He says, as I have done to you, you do to one another. The reason that pride is such a big issue is because it violates the very nature of who Jesus is. We are to be image bearers of Jesus Christ. We project to others who Jesus is. And so the the mode of transportation in which the gospel can come is by serving. Isn't that crazy? By serving. That is the method of the kingdom. Um... Philippians 2 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So why is it wrong? Number one, it violates the nature of Jesus. And number two, you don't know who you are. Pride robs you of your identity. Look what he says. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? He says to him, do you understand that we are the same, but at the same time, we are diverse? We're diverse. We are the same in that we have all been saved the same way. We've all been saved the same way. We're all sinners saved by the grace of God by faith. The second way is we're all sanctified the same way. We're all growing in holiness. That's what sanctification is. We're growing in holiness. We're becoming more like Jesus. It's a a daily thing that is taking place in our life. And the Spirit of God uses the Word of God in the circumstances of our life to bring about change, right? So we're all sanctified the same way. We're all saved the same way. And we're all commissioned to the same thing. 
We're to go into all the world and make disciples. Now, the field is different, isn't it? God calls us to do the same thing, but all in different places. And and in that way, we are diverse because God has gifted us with different abilities and talents and giftings. And God says, I've done that because there's a field that I want you to or, or commissioned you to work in. But we're all commissioned to the same thing. And Paul is saying here, do you not understand that when you exalt yourself above, you do not know who you are? You're losing your identity. Um, so what is the solution to pride then? Like if this is a problem and uh, if you're sitting here and you're like, ah, I'm pretty sure I'm better than everyone in this room, um, <laughs> then we'll talk after. But um, what is the solution? Look what he says in verse 7b. Now if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it. What is the remedy? What is the solution? The solution is God's grace. God's grace. We need to grow in the knowledge of the grace of God by realizing that everything we have and the means by which we receive it is all because of the good, abundant, overflowing grace of God. And that's why we have anything that we have. And the more that we realize that, the better off we will be. It's by God's grace that that I have anything that I have. The very breath in my lungs is a gift from God by his grace. It's not earned. I don't deserve any of it. So the last one, the last point is they had a distorted view of Christianity. Look at what he says. Now, how many of you love sarcasm? All right. You don't have to be ashamed. You can raise your hand. Sarcasm they say is the lowest form of comedy, but it's actually the, the funniest. Like, it's great. I love it. So take heart. The Apostle Paul is sarcastic. I love it. Jesus, at points, was sarcastic. It's so good. That's why the Bible's rad. There's room for you, <laughs> sarcastic people. Look what he says. Verse 8. You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and of men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are dis- or you are distinguished, and we are dishonored. Look what it says in the last verse, verse 13. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscurring of all things until now. So great. What's happening? The key word here is the word already. It's a time stamp. It's a marker of time. These things are true in a spiritual sense. Yes, we are rich. Yes, we reign and rule with Christ as co-heirs with Christ, right? These are all things that have happened because we are in Christ. But what was happening, they were already applying them to themselves, thinking that this is what the Christian life is to be. See see if you recognize this theology, that they were rich, that they were full or healthy, and they had no troubles, no problems. They were kings and queens. Does that sound familiar? This is 2,000 years old. It sounds like Orange County. Doesn't it? Sounds like church in Orange County. There is a, a, um, 
a prosperity gospel going around that if, if you're truly saved and you really are a follower of Jesus, then you're going to be rich. I'm going to say no to that one. And I'm living proof. So you're not rich, healthy, hello. And then number one, like the last one here is what? You're not going to have any problems or troubles. This is ridiculous, right? That's, that's what's happening. And people are like, oh man, if I just do more things, like that's why I need to be saying all this ridiculousness. And Paul, that's what Paul's saying. He's like, you are already full. You are taking the promises of someday that is eternal, which we have spiritually in Christ, and they're making of a physical, right now, present reality. And Paul's saying, you have a distorted view of Christianity, don't you? It's not about being rich, because you're rich in Christ. You, you have a distorted view, and you think that you're going to be healthy, and nothing bad is ever going to happen to you. Nowhere in Scripture does it teach that. Nowhere did Jesus ever say in like a secret, you know, chapter of the Bible where he's like, come in, guys, come here. Guess what? It's going to be rad. You following me? Nothing bad is ever going to happen to you. And Peter's there upside down on a cross going, um, I don't know about this, right? Every single one of these guys, every single one of these guys except John would die for following Jesus in a horrible way. And John, actually, they tried to kill him, but they couldn't. And so they banished him to an island where he was there as like a prisoner working, like splitting rocks, like in cartoons until he died. You know what I mean? Like that, that's what happened to these men. So nowhere in scripture does the Bible promise you or promise me that our life is good. My life is good. <laughs> you know, God is good. God is good. God is the one who blesses. Do we have blessings in this life? Come, come on. Are we blessed? Absolutely we are. If you live anywhere within a 25-mile radius of this place, you are blessed. If you live near the beach, you are blessed. If you have air in your lungs, guess what? You're blessed. Do you have a Trader Joe's by you? Hello, you're blessed. We are blessed people. It's just, it's part, it's, we are blessed. Nowhere in scripture does the Bible tell us that you're never going to have a hardship, never going to go through anything difficult. In fact, Jesus promised. He didn't want you to be disillusioned. He promises that in this life, you will have tribulation, he said. It's going to happen. If they think that I'm the devil and call me Beelzebub, do you not also think they're going to do the same thing to you, he said to his followers. And so Jesus didn't want anyone to have some kind of wrong idea here. He's saying it's going to be hard. But guess what? There is a point in Paul's life which I find fascinating. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, he says, That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says there's, there's, there's a, a way that we can know God that we will that you can only experience by suffering. There is a way to know God and the closeness and, and the, the love of God in a way that is only seen through difficulty. And he said, if that's how we get it, he says, then, then that's what I want. If the only way to get there is by suffering and brokenness and heartache, he says, then, then that's what I want to experience. I do not want a life that, that is so easy and so cush that, that I don't experience that kind of relationship with God. He says, bring on the beatings if that's what it takes to know 
Jesus Christ. How does someone get that attitude? It's not by pride, I tell you that. It's by a, Paul's whole example is that I used to kill Christians. I am blessed to get to do what I do, to know Christ. I mean, his whole life was radically changed by just that one thing that he could know and have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The thing that we have as well. So he says, I want to know him in that way. But we're never promised an easy life. And that's when he, he begins to talk about we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. We've been made the filth of the world. I love that little phrase. The offscoring of all things until now. And he includes them in that we are part of this labor. And so pride distorts that. Pride makes us think that we desert, like what we're going through is I cannot believe that God, where is God? I can't believe he would allow, and he kind of missed this one. I, I don't understand why God would do blah. You know, you fill in the, that's what I mean by blah, it's fill in the blank there. You, I can't believe God's missed out, or he turned his back, or I don't understand. And where pride is saying, like, God, I'm not as comfortable as I was. Distorts our view of Christianity that's it's supposed to be easy, but it violates the nature of Jesus. Like we're to serve. And we're to be those that, that lower ourselves. And we don't want to, we want to be like Jesus, right? So, man, may God help us. Now, if you're sitting there and you're like, man, I don't, how am I going to not be prideful? Just like always talk bad about myself and like secretly fish for compliments. Like I'm so ugly, and your friends are like, no, you're beautiful. And you're like, I, oh, I just, oh, yeah. I really want to lose three pounds. Like, oh, you're gorgeous. You don't need to lose anything and whatever. And you're like, no, stop. Right? How do we get rid of pride? The solution is the grace of God. But it's also like a, an intentional desire to say to the Lord, like, God, rid me of this. Rid me of this. Like, it's in there deep. It's in there deep. And please, just keep pulling it out. And if you pray that prayer, just know it's a good thing. It is a good prayer. But the way in which God is going to rid you of pride, he's going to humble you. Like Jesus said, right? He says, he who exalts himself will be humbled. And Jesus didn't say that in some mean way. He said it in his grace, I will humble you. I will. Because I love you. I love you so much. Right? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. And God, I thank you that we have this wonderful opportunity to know you in this way, to love you in this way, God. We thank you for your goodness. Lord, I thank you that you don't leave us to our own devices and kind of um, just leave us to figure it out. But God, you and your word have told us, warned us. So God, if anyone is on that path and kind of just walking around, um, just puffed up, Lord, we want to be like Jesus. We want to be those that lower ourselves before you... Uh, come and, and lower us. And so, Lord, we want to take this time as we just worship you and, and um, God, give us a picture of heaven in your throne. 
so that we can be humbled in your presence. We thank you, God, that you love us and you care for us so much. You don't cast us out of your presence, but you invite us in because of the blood of Jesus. And so, Lord, tonight, if anyone needs just a touch from you, from your spirit, an encouraging word, Lord, they just need that that word from the Holy Spirit to come alongside and and to whisper to them, I love you, I care for you. Don't walk away. Don't don't run away. Come close. Um, Lord, we pray that you would do that now. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Stop.